Good morning, church family. Assisting in our service this morning, we have the Paris family, and Malaya will come and read our call to worship from Psalm 103, and then she will light the candles. Malaya. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins far from us, as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Thank you, Malaya. So that Psalm 103 celebrates the unfailing love of the Lord God. And this is part of what Advent represents, is the longing and hope of uh, God's people that he would come and save them, that he would be true to his unfailing love. Well, for our uh, Advent series this year, we're going through the beginnings of each of the four Gospels, looking at Advent beginnings. Uh, So last week, we looked at uh, the beginning of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2. And uh, this morning, uh, Eugene will take us through the prologue to John's Gospel, John 1, verses 1 through 18. And um, the theme of this Sunday is love, which we'll see there. So to prepare for that, uh, I will read this passage, one of the most uh, sublime passages of uh, literature ever written. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Well, Eugene, come and uh, lead us through this marvelous, marvelous passage. 
please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us this morning. We thank you for your love and your grace and your compassion. God, we just ask, Lord, now that you would soften our hearts to receive your word. Would you open eyes and open ears in the way that only you can? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hello, PBCC. Um, as Bernard mentioned, my name is Eugene, and I am one of the pastors here. And it's been exactly three months to the day since I last had the opportunity to share with you from the Word of God. I've been spending the time in between getting to know as many of you as I can, and I still have quite a long way to go. And many of you have been getting to know me, some of you quite well, quite deeply. Um, but I'd like to share with you this morning just one more piece or, or maybe I should say slice of information about myself. And that is that I love pies. I really love pies. I love pies of any kind. Sweet pies, savory pies, fruit pies, meat pies. I have not come across a pie that I have not loved on some level. In the ongoing battle between cakes and pies, I am firmly team pie. Anyone here with me on that? <laughs> Amen. God bless you. Okay, yes. <laughs> uh, but yes, I love pies, and I especially love how available they are, especially during this time of year. I mean, eating a pie was a special treat for us when I was younger. I, I really had no idea that you could just go out and buy a pie at a store or at a bakery, either, either whole or by the slice. I mean, this week alone, I had three slices of pie on my way home from work. Um, <laughs> please, I guess my wife is going to know now, but yeah. <laughs> of course, homemade pies are the best, right? There's something different about a pie that's been made from scratch by the hands of someone close to you. The reason I didn't know that pies could just be bought at a store was that my mother had always made them, for her, uh, made them herself for my sister and I when we were kids. And I still remember, I can still picture it in my mind, the, the smell and the taste and the look of these pies that would come out of her oven, always from scratch. Now, as I got older, I began thinking a bit more seriously about pies. And at some point in my pious meditations, I came across a quote about pie by the astronomer and educator Carl Sagan. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Now, this is easily the most profound thought about pie that's ever been thought. <laughs> and of course, it's true on some level, isn't it? I mean, to make something from scratch means to make something from nothing. And if we take that phrase seriously, it means we must go beyond buying and peeling and cutting the apples for our apple pies to actually planting the apple trees ourselves. It means we must go beyond buying flour and butter for the pie crust to actually planting the wheat and raising the cows ourselves. And it means that we can't just buy a pie tin from the store. It means we have to go mining for the iron ore buried deep within the mountains and then smelt that ore into steel and then shape that steel into the circular shape of a pie tin ourselves. And not only that, not only that, but we must ourselves be the ones who buried the iron ore there in the first place. We must be the ones who put the iron ore in the mountains, and then we must even bring the mountains into existence. 
and to create mountains. We must shape and guide the tectonic plates of the earth's stony crust. We must lead them to collide with one another. In fact, we must create the earth itself. Not only that, but we must create uh, the uh, the planet from stardust and the stars from matter and the matter from atoms and the atoms from subatomic particles like this hydrogen atom that you see right there. We must send the first electrons flying through their clouds and valences around the very first protons and neutrons. And we must do all this even before we invent language even before we invent literacy and communications, technology and agriculture and society and governments and utilities, as well as the human beings using them so that we can download a recipe on our smartphone for apple pie. <laughs> to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Now, of course, this is not at all what people mean when they say they made something from scratch. But it does raise the question of when a pie begins. How far back does the beginning of a single pie go? When does a pie begin? And not just pie, but really anything to which we set our attention. And with our attention being set these days of Advent on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation, and the gospel that he brought to us, it is natural for us to wonder, when did the gospel begin? How far back does the beginning of the gospel go? And as Bernard shared with us last Sunday and reminded us just a moment ago, each of the gospel writers answered this question in complementary but different ways. Let's briefly review these beginnings. Mark began his gospel with John the Baptist calling those with ears to hear to prepare the way of the Lord. In the gospel of Mark, the good news begins with the announcement of God's kingdom that God's chosen king had come. Luke, however, began his gospel a generation earlier, starting with John the Baptist's parents and Jesus' virgin mother. In the gospel of Luke, the good news begins with the eyewitness testimonies of the so-called little people who first welcomed Jesus into the world. But Matthew, he took it even far farther back in time. As we saw last week, Matthew began his gospel with a genealogy that connects the incarnation of Jesus to the full sweep of Israel's history. In the gospel of Matthew, the good news begins with Abraham presenting Jesus as the culmination of Israel's hope. Each of these three gospels begin at a specific space and time in human history. They tell the story from the ground up, so to speak, from our space-time, from the level of our human experience. But as is so often the case, the fourth gospel presents things differently. Like the eagle that eventually became his mascot, John soared upward zooming out of human history until he left it entirely. In the Gospel of John, the good news begins in the eternal past of pre-creation, where nothing existed, nothing besides the Godhead, the Trinity. John started his Gospel, in other words, from scratch. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, seeing as how PBCC has visited the prologue of John many times in the past 
two years as recently as two weeks ago, I won't retread every exegetical point that could be made about these verses, but I will simply remind you of a few themes that shape the prologue, beginning with how they echo, how these verses echo Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first three words, which are really just two in the Greek, of John 1.1 are identical to the opening of Genesis 1.1, arguably the most famous phrase in human literature. We know exactly what is being referred to when we hear the phrase, in the beginning. And John's original audience would have as well. With those words, in the beginning, John's gospel transports us to the space before space, the time before time. This is the primordial, eternal past, the pre-creation nothingness where only God existed. And it turns out that he already existed as a community of persons, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The Son is referred to as the Word in John 1, 1 to 3, the narrative of God, the exegesis of God, which tells us that he is the self-expression of God. God the Son is the living Word who makes God the Father known to us. Now that the Son is the self-expression of the Father is reinforced by how closely they are depicted in these verses. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as the Father's self-expression, the living Word executes the will of the Father. For example, God the Son executed the will of God the Father in carrying out the work of creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him from scratch, through Jesus the living word, and without him was not anything made that was made. But jumping to the end of the prologue, we are reminded that Jesus, the living word, also executed God the Father's will in redeeming fallen creation by revealing to us the grace and truth of God. Verses 14, then 16 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God had indeed revealed something of himself to his people through Moses so many generations prior, for the law was given through Moses, a law that both mediated between God and his people, but also separated them on account of God's holiness. Indeed, God revealed to and through Moses something of his grace and truth, his covenant faithfulness, his unfailing love. But in Jesus Christ, we have received the full communication of God's grace and truth. In Jesus, the living word, God revealed not only the train of his glory as we waited in the cleft of a mountain, but the fullness of his unfailing love. And he did this by becoming a human, by donning a human body with which he could live and move and dwell among us. And not only this, but ultimately to die for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as a human tabernacle that brought God near to us. And only Jesus could have done this. Only Jesus, the living word of God, very God of very God, eternally begotten but not made, 
Only God the Son could have revealed to us the heart of God the Father. John reminded his readers of this at the end of the prologue in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now that phrase, the Father's side, is a rather soft translation of the original text. The Greek behind it means something closer to the bosom embrace of the Father. Jesus, the living word of God, was eternally sunk into the bear hug of the Father's love. Who better to reveal the heart of God then than the one who lived throughout eternity past listening to God's heartbeat? John's point then is that Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal to us the heart of God. No one before or after Christ could claim these things of, him, of themselves. As Sean put it, no one has ever said what Jesus has said or done what Jesus has done. And this uniqueness is rooted in Jesus' co-equality with God, in the intimate fellowship the Father and the Son shared from before space was space and before time was time. For John, then, the gospel begins with Jesus' identity as the living word of God. Whereas the other gospel writers emphasize the human historical context surrounding Jesus' arrival, John soared high above human history to the bosom embrace of God, where Father and Son dwelled eternally in the perfect love of the Spirit. It is as if God, John was saying that this is where the gospel truly, ultimately began, in the love shared between the Father and the Son, a love that could not be contained, but overflowed into the creation of a world and of a people who could marvel at it. And not only marvel at it, but participate in it as well. At the center of the prologue, verses 12 to 13, John reminded his readers of the purpose for which the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, brothers and sisters, it was God's will in the eternal past to invite others into his bosom embrace, to be wrapped up in the bear hug of his love. It was God the Father's will that God the Son come to us to give us the right to become children of God, to enter into their love by the power of the Spirit. And time and time again, throughout his ministry, Jesus reaffirmed this, the Father's will, for his people and for himself, most famously, as we saw before, in John 3.16, as we sang together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The love shared between the Father and the Son in the eternal pre-creation past could not be contained. No, it had to be shared. It had to overflow. It had to be expressed and spoken into creation, even a creation that had fallen into sin. And so the living word, the Son of God, Jesus, was sent that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, an invitation offered in love to participate in the love shared between Father and Son forever. 
From before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters, the Father willed for his Son to invite us into his bosom embrace. And John, the author of this gospel, the beloved disciple, knew the bosom embrace of God the Son. In John 13, 23, many chapters later, we read that the disciple whom Jesus loved, we see him depicted reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now this word is the exact same word translated as side in verse 18. At their last supper together, the beloved disciple was in the bosom embrace of Jesus previewing for us the bosom embrace into which we have been invited. A love, a love without fear, a love without insecurity, an honest and an intimate love. It was to this intimate love that John spent the rest of his life inviting others to experience for themselves. Writing to the churches he pastored in 1 John 1, 1 to 3, John made his apostolic heart clear. That which was from the beginning, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The living word had come to John, and through the living word, John came to know the unfailing love of God. And John committed his life to sharing with others the living word so that they, too, could know the unfailing love of God and join in bosom embrace with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And all of this began before the beginning of the world. All of this began before the first trees were planted, before the first mountains rose, before the first planets formed around the sun, before the first stars lit the void of space, before the first electrons occupied the first orbitals of the first atomic nuclei, before space was space, before time was time, and the bosom embrace of God was the already unfailing love that would bring the living word to us in flesh and humanity. In other words, the gospel started from scratch. God made the gospel for us from scratch. God loved us from scratch. And unlike Carl Sagan, we aren't being facetious in saying this. We mean this literally. John's literary choice here reflects the literal reality of what happened. God loved us from scratch, from before the foundation of the world. Indeed, this is the very language the Apostle Paul used when he affirmed the same truth to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, the mere mention of the word predestination may trigger in some of us questions of free will and God's sovereignty. Good questions, I should say. Questions that should be addressed to the best of our theological ability if they haven't already been. 
But when we look at these verses through the lens of the father-son theme of John 1, 1 through 18, they make sense in a way that goes beyond the theological and philosophical to the practical and parental. What Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 is the same as what John was talking about in John 1, 1 through 18. God the Father sent his son Jesus to adopt us into his family, to be wrapped up in the bear hug of his unfailing love, and the decision to adopt us was made before the foundation of the world, before any of us existed. This commitment to love us before we existed is something anyone who has been a parent, will be a parent, or has witnessed the goodness of parenthood, even if only by the hollow shape left by its absence. This is something that we can understand with or without a theological degree. Both passages became real to me in a way that they hadn't been before. When my wife, Hedy, and I found out she was pregnant with our first child, William, this is not a birth announcement, by the way, just, just saying. Okay, this is William. This is our first child. Those early days after the first positive pregnancy test, they were a blur of excitement and fear and appointments and more tests. But one of those days as I was driving home from work, I was, I was just still just for long enough to become overwhelmed by one, one single emotion, a single thought. As I was driving, I felt a sense of deep diving, high soaring pride growing in my heart. And I was confused. Why, why was I feeling proud? You know, what was I feeling proud of? Of all the feelings I had been feeling, pride felt the most out of place to me. And I talked with God about this pride. I was confused about it. And the Spirit helped me to see that I was proud of my child not of us as parents or of the new life that we were heading into, but of the child itself, himself, as we would later find out. But that only confused me more. That just confused me more because for all my life, pride had been an emotion associated with accomplishment. Pride is the feeling you get when you do something great. But what, what had this child, you know, this embryo, this cluster of cells, what had this child done? What had this child accomplished? Nothing. It simply existed. And yet that was enough. Simply existing was enough to be worthy of my pride, worthy of my joy, worthy of my love. And as I was feeling these feelings growing in my heart, the Spirit said to me, Eugene, you love this cluster of cells, this embryo, this child already with all your heart. Before this child has accomplished or achieved anything, you love this child even as an evil man, yet you love this child. Hold on to this love. Hold on to this already love. Because as this child grows, you'll be tempted to love him or her because of what he or she can do because of how well he or she can perform. But that isn't, Eugene, that isn't the love of a father, that isn't the love of a parent. Parents love their children already before they have done a single good thing and even after they have done many bad things. The love of a parent is an already kind of love preceding any performance. So hold on to this love, Eugene, that you are feeling right now. 
And he added one more thing. He said, Eugene, know that this is how God the Father loves you and all who are in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this second Sunday of Advent, I believe that this is the Spirit's message from the word that we have been studying from before space was space and from before time was time, from before the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, God loved us from scratch. His love is an already love, a love that precedes our performance, the unfailing love of a parent for their children. And he sent his son from the bosom embrace of the Godhead to be born into this world and to share this already love with you and with me. That this love, this already love, was made from scratch suggests two things for us. First, God's love for us is unconditional. And second, God's love for us is unrepayable. God's love for us is unconditional in that it is offered to us without us having earned it without us having done anything at all to merit it. It comes to us as a gift. It comes to us as a child born, like a savior incarnated. It comes to us as Christmas morning, just like children who have done nothing to cause the world to turn and the dawn to break and the tree to be lit and presents to appear underneath its boughs, like children bounding down the hallway to open gifts already prepared for them. So we come to the love of God as a gift prepared in the dark watches of the pre-creation night, in the darkness of the nothingness before space was space and time was time. Now, I know what some of you guys might be thinking. Yes, when we receive this love, we enter into a covenant with God, a covenant with promises, promises of curses and blessings, and predicating those promises are stipulations or conditions. We keep the covenant with our faith, which shows up in our lives through our choices and decisions and actions. So yes, there are conditions, in a sense, to God's unconditional love. But while this might seem like a theologically thorny issue, once again, any tension is resolved in the parent-child metaphor. Children are born into their parents' love, but should they run away from home, like a certain prodigal, they will not enjoy it. Their enjoyment of their parents' love, which is unconditionally offered, is conditioned on their choice to remain in that love, to receive that love, to live under their roof, and to receive their bear hug embrace. How can children know their parents' love if they run away from home? But if they choose to return, the already unfailing love of a parent will be ready to welcome them back home with tears, with grief, with repentance, yes, but beneath and in and through all these with love. This was, after all, one of the main points of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, wasn't it? The story of the prodigal was intended to illustrate for hard-hearted Pharisees how the love of God truly looked Sounded and felt. Jesus, the living word, revealed the love of God in the eyes of the Father who anxiously scanned the horizon for any sign of his son's return. Jesus, the living word, revealed the love of God in the arms of the Father, wrapped in bear hug around the filthy scraps clothing his son's body. 
Jesus, the living word, revealed the love of God in the tears that flowed from the Father's eyes, in the Father's command that the fattened calf be slaughtered, that this child deserved to be celebrated because though he was lost, now he is found that this child who once was dead had been raised to life. This is what the love of God looks like, brothers and sisters. This is how the love of God comes to us, unfailing and true, faithful and trustworthy, before any of our good works, before any of our obedience, before any of our merit or achievement or performance, already prepared to embrace us. And it comes to us not to lay upon us the burden of repayment, Remember how the father in Jesus' parable cuts his son off mid-sentence when he returned? On his way home, the prodigal son had rehearsed a speech declaring his intention to work for the father that he had so deeply wronged. Treat me like one of your hired hands, he had said. But either because he was overwhelmed by his father's love or because his father simply wouldn't hear it in his love, when he found himself back in his father's embrace, The son never got to that part. He never got to the part, never got the chance to ask for a job to be a slave and not a son. God's love cannot be repaid, brothers and sisters. It was never intended to be repaid. As the psalmist declared, the God of creation, the owner of the cattle of a thousand hills, needs nothing from his people. Nothing from our pockets, our wallets, our savings accounts, nothing of our wealth or resource to deserve or repay for his love. All things come from him, after all. If he were ever to feel hunger, would he ask us to provide, to meet his needs, to feed him from our hands? As Paul had admonished the Corinthians, is it the children's responsibility to save for their parents? No, but the parents take upon themselves the call to meet their children's needs. And whereas that may change with our earthly parents, we never outgrow our heavenly father. The only repayment God desires of his children, of his beloved children, is their gratitude and trust. And is this not true of human parents as well? Even, even we as broken people, is this not true of us as well? Should this not be true at least, that parents desire only for their children to know their faithfulness, to know their devotion and their commitment to provide and to protect and to lead and to guide, to love and to forgive and as a response then to love and trust and obey them. Now I recognize that for some of us or maybe many of us, this can be a painful sermon to hear. It may be painful because it reminds us that we did not have or, or that we are not ourselves the kinds of parents that illustrate this unconditional, unrepayable, already and unfailing love of God. When we look back at our childhoods or when we look back at how we ourselves raised our children, perhaps, we might feel that love and merit were not at all detached. That love and performance were not at all decoupled. That love was predicated upon accomplishments and achievements. Perhaps we were shown a love that had to be earned. Perhaps we passed on that kind of love to the people around us. And the memory of this unlove 
haunts us, especially at this time during the holidays, when we see seemingly everyone around us enjoying time with family and friends, making and then looking forward to keeping plans to reconnect and reunite. We look at all this familial love and it only deepens our sense of grief that we weren't loved the way we should have been or that we didn't love the way God has loved us. Brothers and sisters, if this is how you feel, if if this is what you have brought into today's service, I understand. I'm there with you. I know what it is like. I know what it feels like to be caught in seemingly endless cycles of family trauma, to be caught in a time loop of defensiveness and coping mechanisms. I mean, the holidays always seem to bring out the best and the worst in us, don't they? I mean, I understand, but more importantly, God understands. And God sees, and God knows, and God grieves for the unlove that you have felt. And here in the dark of irresolution, in the darkness of anger and anxiety, in the emptiness and void of conflict and woundedness and a pervading sense of worthlessness and the unresolved tension of pre-redemption, before healing heals and before restoring is resto- restoration is restoring, in the heart of God there beats a love for you and for me that goes back farther than our oldest familial wounds. There is between God the Father and God the Son a love that precedes all performance, an already unfailing love that began long before the trauma traditions of our earthly families. And this love which existed before space was space and time was time moved God to cause light to shine into the darkness and to gather that light into stars and to set planets spinning around those stars. And on one of those planets, the love of God moved him to bury in its mountains the iron that would one day be fashioned into nails and to plant trees that would one day be shaped into a cross so that one day the Son of God, the living word, could be crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And by the Holy Spirit, by his work in the incarnation and the illumination of our hearts, we can receive this already unfailing love. This love that precedes performance, this love that takes us as we are before we've done anything good wraps his arms around us and celebrates that we've come back to our senses. We can receive this love, which is the true gift of Christmas, brothers and sisters, the right to become sons and daughters, the children of God by the will of God from before the foundation of the world. And in this love, in the bosom embrace of the unfailing love of God, we can begin rebuilding our identities We can demolish the old self-identifications based on achievements and successes, and we can rebuild our identities on our belovedness. We can be children again, in other words. Children wrapped up in the bear hug of God's love for us, and that belovedness can become the foundation to a new hope and a new joy and a new peace, not only during the season of Advent, but for the rest of our lives. This love which stands outside time, which began before the beginning, it can interrupt our endless trauma cycles and write a new story in their place. So brothers and sisters, 
Won't you partake of this love with me? A love that goes deeper than your worthiness and that lifts you higher than your achievements. A love that remains forever because it was from forever. This is the purpose of the Lord's Supper, of communion, to which we now come. I invite you to approach the table this Sunday with this love in mind, with this love in mind, like children approaching a table set for us by loving parents. A table full of nourishing, delicious food, a table where there is always a seat available to us. A table prepared without our help and with the truest of loves. Let us remember the love that is spread on this table. Let us remember that Jesus, the living word, revealed the fullness of God's already unfailing love to us by coming to us, motivated by commitments made before the foundation of the world, taking on human flesh in space and time and dying for us on our behalf as a sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins so that we might have the right to become children of God. Before we take of the elements, let's just sit in this love for a moment. Let's take a few moments to reflect on it, to lower our defenses, to surrender our suspicions, and to sink into the bear hug of the love of our Heavenly Father. Silently, let's just take a moment to do that now. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Go forth in the belovedness that is yours in Christ Jesus. Be well.